Happy Mother's Day, everybody. We are glad that you are with us on this beautiful Mother's Day. I want to add my, uh, I guess, welcome and also honoring for all you mothers. We are glad that you're here. You know, as we go through this series called Honest to God, I'm reminded today that uh, we often recognize that God is uh, our Heavenly Father. But the Bible also understands that God has a, a feminine side. The Old Testament talks very much about God being like a a mama bird who wants to gather her children under her wings to to shelter them and to protect them, to give them warmth and comfort and nurture. And as we go into the last and the four primary lies that the enemy really wants to use to get us off track in our relationship with God, I think it might be appropriate this morning to to think about God in that way, in, in, in that the same way that we all hope for, long for, and many of us have even experienced the love of a, of a mother who cares for us and who, who wants the best for our lives. That, that is God in our life too. And yet we often struggle with believing that we are good enough or worthy enough or all of the things that we challenge ourselves to believe about ourselves and whether God really sees us that way or not. Uh, We need to recognize that God's truth has come through his son, Jesus Christ, to overcome all those lies that we believe so that we can allow the truth of God's word to go down deep into our lives, into our experience of this world, but even more into our own understanding and what we believe about ourselves. And so as we go into God's word again today on this Mother's Day, I want to invite you to pray with me one more time and let's just ask the spirit of God to, uh, to spread the wings of God's Spirit over us here this morning and to gather us together so that we can hear from God's Word, a word of love and nurture and grace this morning. Would you pray with me? God, we do thank you that as we turn our eyes upon Jesus and look full in His wonderful face, all the things of this earth become strangely dim because the light of His glory and grace reminds us of your deep love for us. That you have not left us abandoned and alone, but, but you have given us your word, and your word is designed to, to create new life in us. God, would you speak to us again through your word and through your son, Jesus, and through your spirit about what you would like us to know about who we are in you and how we can experience the freedom that comes from living in your truth. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Today we look at... The shame trap, we've gone through the performance trap, uh, the approval trap, the uh, blame trap, which was last week, and the the temptation to point the finger at everyone else or or even then to point it back at ourselves. And and today we, we wrap up by going maybe even to that deepest level of the shame trap. And the shame trap is essentially the lie that the enemy wants us to believe that I am what I am and I cannot change. There's no point in trying to be anything different because what I am is what I am. And uh, shame, in a sense, is a spinoff of the blame trap, which blame is really a, a fear of punishment, and it's related to guilt. But, but after we spend our lives seeking uh, success through performance and, and seeking the approval of those people around us, and ultimately trying to avoid the, the blame and the guilt of being the one at fault, 
we're left with this deeper sense of dissatisfaction with the very core of who we are. We are, we are in a sense, ashamed of the person that we believe ourselves to be. We feel guilty for the things that we do, but we feel ashamed at that deeper level for who we are. And so scholars and psychologists will suggest that shame is one of the the deepest rooted lies that we can believe as Christians that prevent us from experiencing the joy and the freedom of the truth of God in our lives. Lewis Smedes, who is a Fuller professor and scholar who wrote a book called Shame and Grace says that it's really important that we understand that there are healthy forms of guilt and shame, but there are also unhealthy forms of guilt and shame. Healthy forms of guilt and shame come from the fact that God has given us a conscience and we understand right from wrong. And if we make a mistake or we, we are guilty of a sin, then yes, we, we should feel bad for that. We, we should have some sense of shame for the things that we've done that have hurt other people. But unhealthy shame and unhealthy guilt takes on a character that's very different from having a healthy conscience. Smeed suggests that unhealthy shame exaggerates all of our faults. Are you a person who every time you make a little mistake, you you get really upset because, oh, see, I've done it again. Or or are you a a person who who every time you see a flaw in others, it it becomes this glaring thing because you see yourself in them. And so so all of the flaws of everybody around you are magnified because you have this sense that 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 is a reflection of who you are. Smeads also says that unhealthy shame becomes a chronic experience of life. It's not like we we go through a period where we we feel guilt and shame for something we've done and we we ask forgiveness and then we move on. It becomes a core sense of who we are and our experience of life in this world. And we begin to read our shame into the faces of all those around us. And we think that they are looking at us with eyes of criticism and judgment. And ultimately, he says, the greatest risk is that over time, without the correction of God's truth and God's grace and God's love, unhealthy shame begins to pervade our whole being and our whole sense of identity as who we are. Now, the truth is that in Christ, God is making all things new. If we go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, which we looked at earlier in the series... We, we get to understand that part of God's plan for restoring his creation, and you and I included, is this idea that, uh, of what theologians call regeneration. We have new life in Christ. And in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, it says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, and the new is here. Now, let's think about that for a minute, though, because if the new has come, why is it that so much of our lives are spent feeling guilty and ashamed for all the past experiences that we've had, either from our own mistakes or the things that, the sins that others have perpetrated that have caused us to be wounded and broken and hurt? God's truth through his son has come to, to open the windows and the doors to let us have a whole new experience of life in Christ. The new has come. It is here. And yet too often we get uh, stuck, we get trapped in the past because of our own fear and anxiety of the, the things that we feel bring shame to our lives. 
Robert McGee, who wrote the book uh, The Search for Significance, which again is kind of our inspiration book for the series, says unhealthy shame is the lie that binds people to the hopeless pessimism associated with what we call poor self-esteem. And you see, when this happens, he says, our self-image becomes nothing more than a reflection of our past negative experiences. And then our past experiences keep us from experiencing and enjoying the new life in Christ. Well, that's the way I've always been, and that's the way I'll always be, we might say. Is that true? Is that, if, if, if that's the way we've always been, is that the way we're always going to be? Have we just resigned ourselves to, to our lot to say, I'm just a schmuck. I'm just a loser. I'm just whatever I am today. Let's think about this truth that Christ has come. He's risen from the dead. He's ascended to the Father, and he is our, our advocate before God, and someday he is coming again. And our belief in this truth is that one day we will be with him in paradise. Now just imagine with me for a minute that day when, when the curtain of history is pulled back and Christ returns and, and we enter into the glory of God and into eternity. Are you going to be the same person in that eternity that you are this morning sitting in the pew that you're sitting in right now? No, I'm not going to be the same. We are going to be transformed to be like him. When he arrives, we will become like Christ. We will have resurrected bodies. We will have renewed souls. We will be uh, spirits who are empowered by the very spirit of God. And the whole truth of what God wants us to recognize is that we can experience that person today. Whether we believe it or not, whether we realize it or not, that person that you are going to be when you stand before God's glory, fully redeemed, fully forgiven, is the person that you already are today. The new has come. The challenge is we don't really believe it. We don't really believe that we can start now to live in that eternity with Christ. But if we understand the truth of what God's word teaches us, we have courage to step out of the box that we find ourselves in, to free ourselves from that trap of guilt and shame and self-loathing, to recognize that God sees us with eyes of love and mercy and grace. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for beautiful works in his name. That someday person is the person that you already are in Christ today. Our past failures, our physical appearance, what we see in the mirror, our bad habits, all of these things can contribute to our sense of a growing hopelessness that who we are today can't ever be different. And we're trapped in this cycle of guilt and shame that makes every flaw in our performance so overpowering or so disappointing that it creates a, a permanently negative opinion of ourselves. Now, now, we have to keep in mind that other people around us might not know this deeper sense of shame and failure that we carry with ourselves, right? And we, we keep that pretty well locked up tight, hidden down deep inside. Other people not, might not realize the depth of fear that we all walk around with day after day of not living up to other people's expectations, of not being successful enough, of not being approved by others. I didn't bring my paper up, but Brian and Annie, thank you, band, for leading us in worship. My, my sentence, I am fearful, but God is faithful. 
but I know that God is faithful. We all live day in and day out with this free-floating anxiety, this underlying fear that somehow we're just not good enough, right? We might be good people, but, but at some level, if you really push us to the point where, where we say, what do we really believe about ourselves? Well, yeah, I'm okay, but I'm just not good enough. And, and that, that kernel of the lie that says you're just not good enough is the seed of shame. That, that takes root in our soul and in our heart and gets us to begin to believe that nothing we ever do then is going to be good enough. We just can't measure up. Shame can have powerful effects on our self-esteem and it can manifest itself in many ways. Two, two ways, primary ways that if we have this root of shame, even if it's hidden down deep in our lives, can manifest itself is primarily through one, self-hatred or self-loathing which many of us are familiar with. And the second one, believe it or not, is pride. Now you might go, pride? How does that, that's like the opposite of shame, isn't it? Well, actually, pride and shame go pretty closely hand in hand. But first, let's look at this self-loathing and self-hatred. Chronic shame can lead us to a sense of inferiority, this feeling that we're just not good enough, that we just can't measure up. And therefore, it can lead to some self-destructive behaviors or a a sense of self-pity where we withdraw from certain situations where we feel like, like we might be judged or we might not meet other people's approval. It can lead to a loss of creativity and codependent relationships and, and often a, a sense of despising our own appearance and our, and our own bodies. And our, there's, there's just this deeper sense of dissatisfaction with who we are. And all of that comes from a sense of, of shame that we just don't like ourselves. But what that can lead to is this flip side where we have this prideful projection of our own strength and competence that we feel we have to put out to the world as a way of hiding the fact that we really are ashamed. And so shame itself can lead to an outward form of pride that masks itself by always correcting and criticizing those around us and holding people to a higher standard of expectation that, that we feel like we should live up to even if we're not. We approach the world around us with overly critical eyes. You ever watch these uh, TV magazine shows where they track the celebrities and they, they watch them on the, on the red carpet and they're coming in in their you know, beautiful ball gowns and tuxedos? I mean, how much of that is all just nitpicking and criticizing what they're wearing? And, oh, did you see that dress? And how awful. And, oh, she looks like she's putting on a few pounds. And have you heard about this relationship that split up? How much of our culture is spent watching the train wreck of celebrities' lives? Right? All the while us going, well, see, I mean, I'm not that bad. But we have this voyeuristic uh, need to, 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 to kind of glom on to the failures and the mistakes and the drama of everyone around us because I think underlying is this fear that somehow we're, we're not good enough ourselves. And so to see that other people make mistakes and other people mess up somehow gives us a sense of, of, of a prideful lift to say, well, maybe I'm not all that bad. To see the tension between this self-loathing and this outward blustering of pride creates this tension in us as human beings where we have a lot of people who who were trying to live up to their expectations all the while they might be just as broken and fearful and hurting as we are because we've buried it down so deep inside 
French philosopher Albert Camus penned some poetic words in the early 20th century that interestingly capture this tension between self-loathing and pride. He says, covered in ashes, tearing my hair, my face scored by clawing, but with piercing eyes, I stand before all human beings, recapitulating my shames and saying, I was the lowest of the low. However, I have a superiority in that I know it. And this gives me the advantage because the more I accuse myself, the more I have a right to judge you. The more I accuse myself, the more I have a right to judge you. How much of our lives as human beings and in our culture is spent accusing and heaping shame upon ourselves and the more we do, we give ourselves the right to go around and do that with everybody else. Because at our core, we don't really believe that we are loved and lovable. And so how can we really love others in the way that we too need to be loved? See, really we're masking a deeper sense of fear and anxiety that maybe, just maybe, we're really not good enough. While we've allowed the love of Christ to begin to work its transformation in some of the outward expressions of our lives, we, we, we've transformed our Sunday schedule to go to church on Sunday morning. We, we, we've started tithing, you know, 3% of our income on our way, hopefully to maybe more 10 to say we, we trust God with all of our resources. We've begun to change the people we're hanging out with and, and trying to modify our lifestyle so that we appear to be more godly and Christian. We, we've not allowed the truth of God's word to sink down deep enough to that level that it actually has changed our core identity and understanding of who we are, that we are saved by God, we are loved by Christ, and that we are a child of God that was designed for beautiful things in God's kingdom. But instead, because of our own emotional brokenness and the the often dysfunction in our relationships, more often than not, we tend to run from the light. When, when the truth of God's word comes, we hide ourselves away in our own self-pity and our own self-loathing or through our, our own mask of judgmentalism that turns around and criticizes everyone else around us. You know, I've shared a little bit of my own personal story as part of this series and before, and you know, I, I grew up with, with that performance mentality that somehow I should be perfect. And I should be able to get straight A's in school, and I should be successful, and I should be able to do all these things, but, but, but I never could, or I, I actually, I never did. And so, so even though I gave up on perfectionism and trying to be perfect, I, I carried with me the expectation that I should. And because I wasn't perfect, then I, I carried shame from the fact that I was not living up to what I believed was expected of me. And it was through most of my childhood and most of my early adulthood before I actually realized and woke up to the fact that, you know what, I don't really like myself. I don't think anybody else, if they really knew who I was, would really like me either. And so I became sensitive to to all the critique and the judgment that I perceived around me. And this fear of failure and this anxiety of performance led me to to all kinds of behaviors to try and escape from all of that pain and that anxiety and that suffering. McGee in his book says, we don't need new efforts to change our behavior and our perspective based on information. Information. What we need is a whole new experience of life in God that changes our identity from the inside out. 
We need a whole new self-concept that's based on the unconditional love and acceptance that God has offered us. What is more powerful, he asks, your sin or God's ability to overcome your sin? Well, we would say, well, God's ability to overcome our sin is more powerful, right? Intellectually, we know that, but emotionally and spiritually, do we really live day to day knowing that no matter what we've done, no matter where we've been, no matter who we believe ourselves to be, God's forgiveness and grace in Jesus Christ is more powerful and can never separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Can the God who spoke the universe into being make a difference in your life? I would say he can But you see, we need to be able to study and apply the truth of God's word in our lives in a way that it it, it makes a difference, that it's not just factual information, but but it becomes the very bread and water that we rely on. As we talked about last week, we sing, hungry, I come to you, Lord, because I know that you satisfy. It's the truth of God's word. It's the truth of his love that brings deep down satisfaction to those broken, hurting places in our lives. So we need to study God's word and we need to get into relationships with people who understand and are living in the truth of God's word so we can too speak truth into one another's lives. You know, perhaps there's no story that better describes this transformation of of a life in Christ than the story of Zacchaeus. You remember Zacchaeus, a wee little man? A wee little man was he. (laughs) He climbed up in a sycamore tree Jesus for to see. Luke 19, verses 1 through 10. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector, and he was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he's going to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and save the lost. You know, there were few people in Roman society that were more hated, despised, and loathed than tax collectors. These were the people who not only collected the taxes, but they also grafted on top of that a little bit for themselves. And if you remember that the the nation of Israel was under Roman occupation at the time, so they were paying taxes not only to their, uh, their, their own authorities, like King Herod, but they were also paying taxes to their oppressors, Rome. And so these tax collectors were considered to be in collusion with the very people who were oppressing God's people. So it was pretty tough to get lower on the totem pole than a tax collector. And it says that Zacchaeus wasn't just a tax collector, he was the chief tax collector. 
He was the tax collector over all the tax collectors. And so all of the graft, all of the corruption, all of the collusion to be greedy and to get people's money all flowed up to him. And it says he was successful, right? He was wealthy. But something in Zacchaeus' life prompted him to say, you know what, there's something about this guy, Jesus, that I'm hearing about. He's, he's going around the, the countryside preaching. He's, I'm hearing these stories of people being healed, and, and, and he's talking about mercy and grace and the kingdom of God coming. There's something about him. I got to at least go get my eyeballs on him. I got to go check him out. So being a shorter man and with all the crowds, he comes up with the plan to climb up in this tree so at least he can just get a glimpse of Jesus. And so here he is, right, seeking after, he just wants to get a glimpse. He, it, it's, you know, TMZ magazine, he's just flipping on the TV to just see this celebrity, you know, Jesus as he's coming by. And of course, Jesus knows he's there and he comes up right into the tree and says, hey, Zacchaeus, just the man I wanted to see. Come on down because I'm coming to your house for dinner. Whoa, Okay. Now, it doesn't tell us what transcribed through that course of dinner at his house. But you can just imagine, right, sitting at the dinner table in Hebrew culture as a tax collector with this rabbi, would-be Messiah, who says, I'm coming to your house. And all the people are going, oh my goodness, he's going to his house? Notorious sinner? And whatever happened around that dinner table, the conversation, looking into Jesus' eyes, the Holy Spirit showed up in some way, and it came into Zacchaeus' heart, and he was a changed man. By the end of that dinner, he had turned around and said, I'm going to give away half of everything I've gotten, and if I've cheated anybody, I'm going to give four times. Now, general rule of thumb in Hebrew society is that you gave about 20% of your income to charitable giving. He's going 50%. And if there's any cheating done, he's going four times, which was the worst punishment that anyone could be paid was four times whatever you cheated somebody. He is going out of his way to demonstrate that his whole identity has now been transformed by the love and the mercy and the grace of God that was extended to him through Jesus Christ who said, I want to come to your house. And I want to sit at your table. And I want to let you know about God's love for you. At this dinner, Zacchaeus experienced the unconditional love and acceptance of Christ. And as a result, he was radically changed from a swindling, loathsome tax collector to a person who knew God and was loved by God. And through Christ, Zacchaeus was able to develop a whole new concept about what it meant to be a child of Abraham. New values, new goals, new behaviors. You see, it was the transformation of Zacchaeus' heart in openness towards God that led to the change of his behavior. This, is kind, this kind of faith and this kind of experience isn't an intellectual exercise. It's not something that we convince ourselves into by believing strong enough. It's an experiential change of our very identity and self-understanding because the Holy Spirit of God has come into our life and we realize that we are loved and valued by God and because of that, we can be brand new. 
It's in the renewing work of the Holy Spirit that literally makes each believer a new person. The new has come. The old has gone. And yet too often we want to cling to that old personality, that old identity, that old experience that says, no, we, it, it can't really be true. I, I can't be somebody different than I am. I, I'm stuck in this pattern, in this shape of, of my own brokenness and my own sinfulness, and I, I'm never really good enough. Jesus says, no, no, let me sit down over dinner and lay it out for you. Let's break some bread together and see that I love you just the way you are. And with the power of my spirit in your life, you can begin today to be that person that you will be in eternity. We experience what Jesus told to Nicodemus in the middle of the night, that we can be born again. On Mother's Day, when we celebrate family and new life and giving birth, we can be born again in Christ. That new person is alive. And through the power of the Spirit work in us, we are being transformed from our old selves into the new self that God is bringing. Christ alone is the one who can fulfill our deepest longing, which is our need for him. And like Zacchaeus, maybe this morning is the morning that God's inviting us to follow the prompting of his Spirit to say, if I can just get up that tree, if I can just step out of the, the, the box where I've been in, if I can just climb up a little bit out of, out of the, the shame trap that maybe I've been existing in to get a glimpse of Jesus, maybe, maybe if I can just get my eyeballs on him enough, then he can do something for me too. Because you see, it's not about your own effort. It's not, about your, your, it's not even about your own faith. It's about the faith that God has in you. It's about God's faith in you. And God wants you to put your trust in his faith in you, not your faith in him. Yeah, we will still struggle with sin. We'll experience the destructive patterns that we, that we live with in this world. But our sin will never change the truth of who we are in Christ and that every day we have the new opportunity to start fresh and to grow to become that person that God has intended us to be. It's that new life in us that actually gives us the capacity for new growth and for change. So how do we do this? Well, step one is you've got to be able to be honest with God. You got to be able to be honest with yourself and honest with God that somewhere down deep inside, we have not really allowed the truth of God's word to take hold and to be the truth of our own sense of identity and who we are in Christ. Now, there's a lot of obstacles to that, that prevent us from doing that. Some of it, as we've said, can be our own patterns of, of sinful choices in our life. Some of it, as Annie shared, can be long years of abusive relationships and challenges with trying to understand how we can be a person of love and value in a world that has not communicated that to us well. But we need to be able to put ourselves into God's word and into God's community in a way that we can provide that place of safety and trust where maybe, just maybe, we can begin to see ourselves with God's eyes and believe that change is possible. If we can do that, then the second thing we need to do is we need to be able to begin to see ourselves in new ways. We need to be able to stand in front of the mirror 
And rather than wrinkling up our nose and going, ah, we have to see in ourselves a child that God loves. We have to see ourselves with the eyes of faith that God has given us, that we are God's workmanship. We are a masterpiece that was created by God to be loved and to love and to experience the reconciliation that he came to give us through his son Jesus so that we can be a light in the darkness, not a magnet for more darkness and shame that we heap upon ourselves. You see, grace comes to us as a gift But if to receive the gift, we have to live open-handed and allow it to come into our lives and say, thank you. We have to let go of our past and let God be the one who transforms us through his word. Grace comes as a gift, but grace also comes as a power. Spiritual energy to shed the heaviness and the shame into the lightness of grace. And as we move forward in our relationship with God, Smeads, again in his book, Shame and Grace, talks about the antithesis of shame and and, and what it does in our life is the experience that the Bible calls joy. The feeling called joy, he says, is the ultimate alternative to the feeling of shame. Joy, not shame, is our destiny in Christ. And then he says this, joy is the ecstasy of gratitude. I love that phrase. Think about it. Joy is not cheerfulness, he says. Joy is not humor. Joy is not a drugged high, but plain and simple thankfulness, deeply felt, down to the bone. Is this not what joy is, he says. Joy is the ecstasy of gratitude. And I think about those experiences that I've had in worship, standing before God and and, and feeling the ecstasy of being in God's presence and and being filled with his spirit. And and, and the, the best I can describe it is a deep sense of gratitude because of everything that God has done for me as a gift, not because I deserve it, not because I could earn it, not because it was somehow I had to be good enough. It all comes as a gift And it brings joy because we are so grateful that God could love someone even like me. You see, Jesus' mission, it says, was to come to seek and to save the lost. Our instincts tell us not to admit our wrongs and to hide our sins and to cover up our signs of weakness and to put on our our happy, shiny church faces and to go about our lives pretending that, oh yeah, everything's good. All the while, we too struggle with the brokenness and the weightiness of our own shame. But like Jesus, the church must become the means for restoring lost and broken people into wholeness and into the lightness and freedom of the joy of Christ. But men and women, we have to get there first so that we can actually invite people to experience the joy that we have found in Jesus our Messiah. Next week, we get to hear from the Kim family, who are some missionaries that we are supporting overseas in Japan. And we get to hear about what the Holy Spirit is doing through their lives and in their work in another country where shame is a big deal. And then after that, we get to wrap up our Honest to God series by spending two weeks talking about the agent of change, the Holy Spirit. Because God tells us that none of this is anything that we can do in our own strength. 
without the provision and the power of God's Spirit making that change in us and us giving him the open-handed permission to work his love in our lives, we're still left with our own abilities and efforts, which always fall short and disappoint. So I want to invite you to pray with me now. And let's ask God to allow his spirit to go deep into those places where maybe you too come this morning with some fear, with some anxiety, with some brokenness, and allow the light and the love of God's mercy and grace to tell us again that we are good enough and that we don't need to be ashamed of who we are. In fact, we can begin to learn to celebrate the uniqueness of who God invites us to be in Christ. Would you pray with me?